Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, we discuss and struggle to pronounce the difficulties in deploying HTTP public key pinning. Plus, we provide some useful alternatives that maybe you should consider. Then we get excited for N plus one sec, a brand new protocol for distributed multi-party chat encryption. Plus, we discuss some of the nuances of deploying a VPN gateway at home. And we've got your fantastic feedback, a romping roundup, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This is episode 334 and is streamed in front of a live Discord and IRC audience. This episode is brought to you by our three excellent sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. My name is Wes, and joining me this week at the ever-so-prestigious one frame per show, that's right, everyone, it's Dan. Welcome to the show, Dan. Hello. May I say, you're looking as handsome as ever, even if you're not moving very much. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. We've had a little bit of technical difficulties this episode, but don't worry. Uh, We're persevering and TechSnap mm-hmm. goes on. Yes. So besides those unfortunate things, what else is new in your world? Well, today Amazon delivered me a USB 3 to SATA 3 and IDE that adapter. That sounds pretty convenient. It is. It has its own power supply. So you plug it into the AC, and then they'll power your 3.5-inch drive. Okay. Because you, you can usually get your SATA drive or your small little laptop drive to power off your USB connection. But this provides power for, for the big things. And so basically, imagine um, a rectangle about the size of a um, business card and about a USB cable thick. Yeah, okay, sure. So on one end of this uh, rectangle, you have the USB data connector and the USB power connector. On the other side, you have the IDE 2.5 connector. And on the other side, you have the IDE 3.5 connector. Nice. And off the back comes a power cable, a USB cable, and a Molex 4-pin cable. Oh, Power that's drive. convenient, yeah. And I think this is only about 10 bucks. Wow. So what's your particular use case? I mean, it seems like you could find a lot of use cases for it, but did you have a particular need? Yeah, I, I have some old powder drives that I'm trying to wipe. And um, I see. Uh, what was it? Um, what's the name of the program? Uh, par- Parted Magic. Can't even... It can't do an ATA race because it doesn't have the drive. I don't think is has smart CTL enabled. Oh, I see. Yeah, so so you're so, having to find other ways to accomplish this. Yeah, and it, it shows up in there. And while I was setting this up, I was using a system which was secure erasing two drives. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you power off while you're secure erasing, you brick the drives. Oh, really? That's an important caveat. Now there there may be a way to get through that, but we'll see. That may be for another story. And then the other the other things that arrived yesterday or yep. the day before was two more five terabyte drives. <laughs> awesome, that's great. And they are now sitting in another system, uh, running some long tests, and 
Remember I was building up a three terabyte array into a five terabyte array? Right. That finished this morning. Oh, that's exciting. So how much more free space do you have? Um, I tweeted about it. Let oh, me perfect. just see. I think it's an extra uh, 27 terabytes appeared. Yeah, no, 18. 18.27 terabytes. That must have felt Additional great. free space. Yes. You'll the be next safe task and... on... Go on. The next... The, ne- the next task on that array is to make sure it boots. <laughs> yeah, that seems important. Which it may not because they are five terabyte drives. Right. And sometimes BIOS has problems booting from five per- terabyte drives. Uh, I think that system is UFI. Nice. UFI. Okay. So then it should probably be fine. But I'm not sure. It's it's It still is kind of old, but we'll see. With, as with all of these things, there's only one <laughs> way to find out. Yes. And I'll do that when I have lots of spare time. Excellent. Well, I look forward to hearing some updates about that. I guess with that, it's time to just jump right into our first topic today. Yes. Um, speaking of hardware, we had a question on the subreddit. And I believe this is the first question we've actually posted that appeared on the subreddit since you and I have been doing the show. Mm-hmm. But... Um, he wrote in asking about doing a VPN for all WAN traffic. So basically, all the traffic that leaves his connection, he wants to go to PIA. PIA, did I get that right? Yeah, v- Private v- Internet v- Access is the That's expanded the name. And I read their page, and it sounded pretty good what they're doing. I liked it. Yeah, they've also so, recently provided a lot of sponsorships for various open source things or paid for some security audits of other projects. So it seems like they're, I don't use them personally, but it seems like they're one of the better community members in some ways. And getting their name out there by doing so. so exactly. So the criteria we have is he has a server with two one gig um, NICs, an unmanaged switch, and a single gateway. So I'm not sure if his gateway if that's his modem or a, another computer or what. Or right, like does he have, is this like a modem router combination or a separate router that, so it's like router modem server or, yeah. or modem router server, excuse me. Yeah, right. I'm not quite sure about that either. And that would maybe yeah. change some things. So I'm going to go, well, I, I'm going to guess that his, his gateway is actually his ISP, where it's going, going to the ISP. Right. If it's if it's different, let us know. But basically, what you want to do is you've got a server, and I'm going to assume the server that he's talking about is going to be his gateway. It's the one that's going to be running OpenVPN. I'm going to assume that's what he's doing. Okay. So what you want to do is you want to hook one NIC up to your single gateway and the other NIC up to this unmanaged LAN. And one of the NICs is going to be WAN traffic, and the other NIC is going to be LAN traffic. Assign an IP, a static IP, to um, the NIC on the LAN, say call it 10.1.1.1, and there run a DHCP server or something, unless you're going to um, statically uh, configure all, everything that's on your LAN, then you won't need it, but... Most people do a DHCP server. So on that DHCP server, have it handing out 10.1.1 as a default gateway. And that will force all the traffic on your LAN to go to this server. Then 
on that server, you want to run OpenVPN with the configuration that you get from um, PIA. And I'm sure they'll give you all the information that you need. Now, one of the things that you want to look at is there is an option on OpenVPN which will set the default gateway, which basically says send everything out through this port here. And what you want to make sure that is in there, it, it, you want to make sure that that setting is there. Otherwise, traffic won't, will, will, will not go straight to PIA. Um, when I use OpenVPN on my laptop, often what I do is I use that to connect into my wired network here at home. So I connect my Wi-Fi and then use OpenVPN to connect into my private network here. Oh, very nice. Yeah, that makes sense. So that means I don't have to cut any holes or anything like that. And then when I'm outside the home, I connect the same way. I connect to my local wireless, then I connect to my VPN. I'm into my network at home. Why am I telling you this? Because sometimes when I'm connecting to my VPN at home, I can't actually do a lot of other types of connections. Sometimes a local firewall will will block things, such as my uh, IRC connection. Sure. They will block that. Yeah. So I have another VPN connection that I can do, which connects to home, but then routes all the traffic over the VPN connection. So none of it goes Very out nice. locally. Okay. So... I may be sitting right beside my IRC server, but all the traffic goes home, out my default gateway from home, and then back in. So it's as if I am at home. So you want to do the same thing. You want all the traffic from that server to go down the VPN, right. and it'll be as if all of your connections are originating at PIA. And that, that's the key. That, that's the most important part of this configuration, is that everything goes to PIA. And it's re relatively easy to do. It's in the OpenVPN configuration. I can't recall the actual setting, but it's in the documentation. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and you'll probably also want to think about you know how you want to how you want to start these things, uh, so that depending on how important it is, you know, do you want to have a fallback to unencrypted traffic, or do you not want to have a fallback to you know to not VPN traffic? Depends on what your what your threat model is and what your intent is. Um, but, you know, making sure that you don't have a, you know, maybe route to PIA set up statically and then not have a default route or you can set things up with namespaces. There's a lot there's a lot of various options there. But to make sure that if PIA goes down, if you don't want it to, your LAN doesn't suddenly get, um, you know, an unsecured connection to the Internet. Exactly. You, you want to put some monitoring in there or something. So that, the, the ideal situation is that nothing works if OpenVPN is not running. And then you know that something's wrong, and you go in and you connect in, and you see that OpenVPN isn't running, and you fix it. Yeah, exactly. And I was, you know, but, this is an interesting. Oh, sorry, go on. But but for the most part, OpenVPN is very stable. Something has to go seriously wrong. Like one of the boxes has to go down for the connection to fail. Right. Yeah. You know, and they didn't uh, didn't say what else they were using this box for. I've seen some people. If you had a fancier switch, you could certainly. You know, there are some certainly other options you could also consider. Uh, you know, some people do, if you had multiple VLANs, people have like a router on a stick configuration. Um, or if you 
especially then maybe if you needed you wanted more throughput between your LAN and the server, let's say if it was serving up VM images to your LAN or something, um, then then maybe like link aggregation would be in, would be worthwhile. But a lot of those would require uh, a managed switch or at least semi-managed. Um, you you said LAN on a stick, didn't you? I meant router on a stick. Oh, That's the one. Maybe you said router on a stick. Yeah. Um, I heard it wrong. But you yeah, could no, also, I've not heard of that. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, like, that's a lot of times you'll see it in, in, let's say, VoIP networks, for instance, where you'll have, like, one network for data and then one VLAN that's just for, like, the VoIP phones. Uh, and mm-hmm. then you have a managed switch where those all connected to and then a router that's on a stick elsewhere that's then also connected to the, the switch and it's set up with the... Then the router is there to route between the two VLANs. Um, hmm. That's more complicated. It depends, too. Like, maybe you want some sort of... You could have your... your depending on if you have, like, a separate gateway that is... Um, actually a router, you could do something where that was on a VLAN uh, and then the LAN had to go through your your other managed router through OpenVPN, then that one would be the only one that would talk to your real gateway. So there's a lot of those options. You could also investigate some bonding if you wanted to have some sort of failover or redundancy involved. But again, that would only be in certain situations where you really needed that for your LAN traffic and wanted to have a more complicated setup. I think what you espoused, Dan, is probably by far the simplest setup just for Boom, make make that server, you know, functionally your gateway, put it in between everything in the LAN, and then you have the, you have the most control. That's actually pretty much how my setup at home is. Uh, I use something uh, for Linux called Firehole, which I've been using a lot, which is just a wrapper around uh, IP tables. So if you are wanting to implement some rules that way to make sure, you know, traffic's only going where you want, uh, I'll add that to the show notes. That's something I can definitely recommend. It oh, adds good. a PF style syntax, not not like a copy of PF, but uh, I find it functionally quite similar, uh, and it makes it very easy to have like plain English style, very easy to understand firewall rules uh, that can also make it simple to set this sort of thing up. Hmm. Yeah, and there's also some some references here you can go find. It was fun to do some research and, and look at all the different modes of bonding that the Linux kernel supports. Uh, there's a lot of options there and some fancy load balancing as well as uh, failover. So, so you can get, so you can get it, crazy with it. How does bonding help in this situation? Oh, it wouldn't. It was more just uh, sometimes people want to have some bonding. Like if you have this big, uh, you know, I've got some some colleagues, for instance, that have some setups where they have, um, you know, big hypervisor servers set up so they can run a bunch of VMs on this one server. And so they want to have more bandwidth available to the LAN, or they just want to make sure that it, it has a very uh, redundant connection and so that if one of those NICs goes down, the, that system's still available for other services on the LAN. Yeah, that's sort of beyond what I've ever done here. Yeah, and I think for most home networks, like that's not really something uh, you know that most people would probably need, so why fuss with it? I think what you're saying is probably by far the simplest option, just have this be a middleware box that sits in between the LAN and your gateway. Fire up OpenVPN. Uh, I will also say if you're on Linux, which it sounds like you're running Ubuntu here, uh, network namespaces are a very useful function for doing some sorts of these isolations. Um, you can have one network namespace uh, where you run OpenVPN um, and then move the the TUN interface that's generated there to another network namespace where that's the, the default route and that's the only, the only interface that exists in that namespace, for instance, and then set it up so that way if that interface is, disappears or goes down, there just simply isn't any other available interface to be routed over uh, 
and that makes it pretty simple so that if OpenVPN's offline, you're still safe. Hmm. So I can put some links to all of that. Hopefully we've hopefully this has been helpful. I don't know if you have anything else you want to add. No. It, it, more and more people are wanting to do this type of thing because of, well, recent legislation in the States which says, you know, your ISP is free to sell your information, including your traffic and your preferences and stuff like that. So, yeah, I can understand why people want to do this. And I have a feeling that some services that are blocking connections that originate at well-known VPN providers, I think that's going to change. certainly hope it does change because VPNs are certainly becoming much more prevalent. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I mean, not only can they be a uh, helpful tool to protect your privacy um, and security, they're also just useful. Like you were, what you were describing at the start of, you know, there's a lot of times you just need access to a network just to be able to connect to it from somewhere else in a secure way to do management things. Or, mm-hmm. or you know, how many corporations use them to just have, if you want to get anything done, you need to first be on the corporate network. Yep. Pretty uh, pretty big stuff. So I know, uh, yeah, I know there's been in- increasing government, uh, you know, surveillance or interference, especially in, say, let's say China, uh, for VPNs. Hopefully we don't see that trying oh, to continue. Yeah. And someone had said that Russia just outlawed VPNs as well, bringing in laptops and stuff like that with VPNs. Wow. Some people are no longer visiting Russia because of it. Yeah, I can understand why. That's, uh, that could really curtail uh, not only your privacy, but, hey, just trying to get things done back in the States or for wherever you're from. Yep, yeah. All right, well, uh, thank you very much for the, the question there, uh, Surfrock66. I'm sure other people have some thoughts on this. Maybe you have uh, know of some really good tutorials that set up something similar uh, or have a similar setup of your own. Write in. Let us know. Uh, I'm sure Surfrock will appreciate this. I know I will, too. And if this is like your kind of thing, you love setting up a cool home lab, you're trying to maximize whatever you're doing at home, you have a huge setup, you've got home servers, you've got backups, you really take this stuff seriously, but you're looking for some new gear, I got, the, I got the place for you. Head on over to iX Systems. Yeah, that's right. Our friends over at iX Systems, they're the first sponsor this evening. They just might be the best. I don't know about that. They're all wonderful. But if you need new hardware of any kind, be that for storage, be that a cool new server that you need, look no further than iX. They've got incredible partnerships with people in the industry, people like Intel, with amazing Intel processors, the latest and greatest. Maybe you saw Intel just released a new one uh, that's kind of specialized for neural networks. Maybe you're doing some machine learning and you really want you want to try something out in some dedicated hardware in your colo, iX Systems. Maybe you just want uh, some backup for your home office. You've been listening to TechSnap. You're terrified there's going to be a fire or, or some other sort of disaster and you're going to lose all of your files. Go check out a free NAS Mini today. You can get them on Amazon, especially if you're a Prime customer. Boom, shipped right to you. You can order them right from iX. Or just give iX Systems a call. This is one way that they're so different. Sure, you can do stuff online. Yeah, uh, they've got all that. But I think you'd be missing out because iX has a super talented staff of trained sales engineers emphasis here on the engineers these aren't these aren't salesmen who're just trying to talk you into a deal and take advantage of you know these are engineers who want to be your partner helping to solve your technical problems and they're experts in this sort of stuff right they they work upstream with the open CFS community they know all about the hardware they they ship and and the hardware that comes from their awesome partners and so you don't have to be 
the whole expert here. You can you can have a problem, you can need a solution, and instead of having to wonder about just what the right motherboard is that will fit this and be expandable for the future. No, you don't need to do that. And and don't take the risk that you're going to get that get that estimate wrong. iX Systems knows. They can test it out. They've got great setups to build these things for you with burn-in testing, white glove service. You really can't go wrong. If you don't believe me, just go check out their blog. They've always got tons of stuff on there, new things all the time that they're that they're doing, that they believe in, that they're talking about. A couple episodes ago, for instance, we talked about the the news about Red Hat no longer really supporting ButterFS. IX Systems chimed in in a very respectful way. It's not it's not a it's not a flame war. It's not ZFS is the best over everything. I mean, there's part of that there, but but it just goes to show you that they they appreciate they stay in tune with the industry. They're a part of the industry and they care about it. Or they have server envy posts every so often. And these these are my favorite because it gives you some insight into just some of the cool systems they're building. So this is a TrueNAS X10. It's the third generation of the TrueNAS Unified Storage line. It's the first of the new series with an expandable up to 360 terabytes. That's pretty impressive. If you want to, you know, you want to get some drool on your keyboard, go check this page out and go check iXsystems.com out. iXsystems.com slash TechSnap. That lets them know you appreciate them sponsoring the TechSnap program. And hey, we do too. Thank you to iXsystems. Okay, so with that, we're on to the next story today. What's What do you got for us next? Well, this one was interesting um, because most people are familiar with encryption of some type even in just end-to-end encryption in a messaging system. Um, The problem with that is it's difficult to do group chats, such as on IRC. And what these folks have done is they've come up with a protocol for distributed multi-party chat encryption. And they're calling it N plus one SEC, which is a pretty cool name. And it's a free end-to-end synchronous protocol for group chat developed by Quality with support from the Open Technology Fund. And they've been doing this for two years of development and testing. And they've released the protocol and the library for securing group conversations on various messaging systems such as Jabber, XMPP, or IRC. And they went through a protocol and cryptographic review by the NCC group. There is a link in the show notes for downloading that PF. And they're looking forward to its implementation in as many chat clients as possible. Now, we'll get into some of the things that this protocol provides. But offhand, this sounds pretty good because, yeah, it's very easy to encrypt a um, RSC channel with something like that because that's exactly what it's trying to do. Now... You've you've used um, Jabber or um, Pigeon or something like that, haven't you, Wes? Yes, I have. Uh, I, I used to use Pigeon way back in the day, and then uh, actually at my current employer, there's an internal internal chat based on XMPP. Yeah, I I've used Pigeon. I used Pigeon on on FreeBSD when I was using a FreeBSD um, laptop, and I remember Pigeon had OTR on it, and o- OTR is is a off-the-record uh, encryption protocol. And I think it was actually sort of ahead of its time. 
it, it had public and private key, and basically you had to set up a, it's almost like identifying something. It's almost like a, what are the a key signing? It's almost like key signing when you go to a key signing party. You would say, yeah, I know who you are, and I'm going to connect to you, and, and yeah, here's a private key here, that I'm going to use when I'm talking to you, and here's a public key that you can use. Um, now, they actually, the reason I'm mentioning this is they talk about OTR being around for more than a decade and is built into any, many desktop and mobile messaging platforms. However, it's limited to conversations between two people and cannot be used for a group of three or more. Now, the Signal protocol that is in Signal, WhatsApp, and Facebook Messenger and other tools, there's over a billion people using that. It's good, but it's reliant upon asynchronous communication and is therefore also dependent on the messaging platform, a central server that can be a single point of failure, or more importantly, as I point out, a metadata collection point. So... Their final protocol addresses all of this, and it has the following security properties for group messaging. And some of these are pretty cool, and some of these are things that I had not thought of. The first one is confidentiality. The conversation is not readable for an, to an outsider. Now, that makes sense. Yeah. That, that, that's one of the primary definitely reasons something I that want. you're encrypting. Yeah. So forward secrecy. Conversation history remains unreadable to an outsider, even if participants' encryption keys are compromised. That's pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. That's something you know, so we've I, been waiting to have to have more of uh, on the internet in general. So it's nice to see that baked right in. Don't they already have that on websites? Yes, for they SSL do. Connections, but yeah. but not. It has. I think that's actually more widely deployed now. But there was a transition time mm -hmm. where that was not often enabled. Mm -hmm. Um, so basically what that, I, I'm guessing that how they do that is using their encrypt, the, using their encryption keys. They, they agree upon a key for this particular session. And once the session is over, that key is discarded and you can't actually dis, de decrypt what was there. That would make sense. Yeah. Deniable authentication. Nobody can prove your participation in a chat. Wow. Okay. That seems very nice. That That is very important to a lot of people. So authorship. A message recipient can be assured of the sender's authentic, authentic, authenticity. Say that three more times. Yes. Even if other participants in the room try to impersonate the sender. So basically, we know who sent the message regardless of what happens. So the next one is room consistency. Group chat participants are confident that they're in the same room. Okay. Transcript consistency. Group chat participants are confident that they are seeing the same sequence of messages. Those are th the last two are things I had not thought of. No, I hadn't really thought of that either, but it does seem like the, those would be somewhat essential here to, you know, to make sure that you really do have the, the confidence you want. Uh, it's one thing to, you know, have a nice secure and deniable but if you don't also have a way to, to believe that you're talking to the people that you want it, it's certainly less useful yeah now d deniable authentication um i wonder is it enough to see your name in a chat list like a transcript i'm sure everyone will be able to tran 
um, keep transcripts anyway. I mean, there's not going to be anything to stop that. Yeah, that's a good question. Like, um, yeah, how much trust do you need to have in the uh, other parties involved in this chat? Yeah. Now, um, what's next? Uh, can you test it? Yes, you can. Um, these folks are actually do they develop an internal dog fooding client in the form of a pigeon plugin, and it's experimental, and you shouldn't rely upon it for security. Um, but yeah, it's a good demonstration how N plus one sec works. They've got a public server set up for testing, and you can run the server software with any Jabber XMMP server you already have. That's awesome. And they wrote a command line client called Jabber Jabberite. Now, what I'm intrigued in and what I want to see is something like this added to a whole lot of clients. Whole, like all the IRC clients out there, I want this in. All the messaging clients, put it in. Add it to all the server software. Right. What is it? Rat Ratbox? Ratbox? Yeah, Ratbox. I use Ratbox. Um, you know, I'm not sure if I'm familiar with that one. It's a IRC server that that we happen to have um, in some places in use. It's a derivative, I think, of IRCD. Um, I see. Let me yep. click here and find out. Yeah, uh, Ratbox.org 3.0.1 has been released. So IRC. It's called IRC dash Ratbox, so I'm sure it's a it's a fork of IRCD, which is sort of the the most popular one that's been around for a while. Right. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I'm just I'm just waiting to see how widely this gets used. I'm interested. I hadn't heard of it before. Someone brought this article to my attention. Yeah, you know, uh, same same here, and while. Well, I do think, you know, people are asynchronous communications, I think, are, are somewhat dominant in the, um, let's say, like, person to, common person to person space. Uh, this seems like it would be very useful. And then especially for things like journalism, uh, activism, political groups, mm -hmm. other situations yep. where it's not about convenience. It's about like, I mean, some level of convenience, but it's not about absolute convenience. It's more about like you want security guarantees and to be able to use, you know, existing technologies that are easy to deploy and that are understandable. From what I can tell, this can be added into just about any client. There's no reason why it can't be. It's just part of the send-receive mechanism. If you've got your software designed decently, it's just a matter of tossing it in. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. So I hope, I, it, and it does seem like it's a significant new, you know, new contribution to the field um, that was definitely needed. I'm, I'm really curious to look through some of this, uh, the security review that was done. Uh, it's, it looks like it went pretty well. I haven't, I haven't read all of it, but just looking at some of the highlights there. Uh, and yeah, hopefully we see some, some rapid adoption. Yes, please. Excellent. Okay. Anything else you'd like to add about our uh, um, N plus no. one sec? No. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's great. And maybe, just maybe, you'll be using this on an IRC client of your very own some, somewhere near you. And if you're like me, you'll probably be using it on your phone. That gets a lot easier if you head on over to our next sponsor tonight, which is Ting. Head on over to techsnap.ting.com. 
There you'll find a smarter way to do mobile. Maybe you are all in on board with N plus one sec. You're like, yeah, that sounds great. I want to do all my chats over this. I'm security conscious. So, hey, that's I think that's great. You probably want to stay away from text messages then. Ting makes that possible. How? By doing things differently. Ting is fundamentally about making mobile make sense again. And that starts with pay for what you use. So Ting plans, they start at just $6 a month. That's that's your line price. And then you pay for what you use. So you tally up how many minutes you've used. I mean, you don't have to. Ting does that for you. The number of messages and the number of megabytes. So if you're not sending any text insecure plain text messages, you don't have to pay for them. And that means you can instead spend that money on data, which, hey, isn't that what we pretty much all use our phones for these days anyway? So whether you're having secure IRC chats, you're trying to upload things, or you're just downloading the latest episode of the TechSnap program, it's super simple on Tank. Plus, they have a whole bunch of things you want and a whole bunch of things that you don't want aren't there. Things like contracts. Two weird contracts? No, not on Ting. Not at all. Early termination fees? None of those either. But they have three-way calling, tethering's included. It's just, it's all, it's all just data to Ting. So you'll pretty much find things like voicemail, all those things that you've come to know and love about whatever carrier you might have now. It's all super simple when you migrate to Ting. They've got an incredible app. You can do whatever you need to pretty much on their app. Turn off lines, add new phones. It's all there. Got a crazy intuitive dashboard over at techsnap.ting.com and incredible first rate human customer support you see ting doesn't have to waste a bunch of money trying to improve the network or build out new towers or find another way to throttle you unpredictably or try to buy media businesses that they can be the next media content producer ting doesn't bother with any of that So instead, they're focused on you, the customer, trying to help you have the best experience that you can. You'll see the difference right when you switch. They make it super simple. You can go to their website. They have um, a great rates page, which will just make it super simple to estimate how much you think you're going to spend per month. Or if you want, uh, they've got a great service too, where they'll, they'll go pull up your recent bills and then estimate how much you would save over the next two year period. Makes it pretty simple. By going to techsnap.ting.com, you'll get a $25 service credit. So when you find out that the average monthly bill is like $23 a phone, you'll realize that'll probably pay for your first month. And if you need to buy a new phone, you can bring your own phone. Ting makes it super simple. Bring your own device. They've got online checkers to check the IMEI. If you need a new phone, they've got a great shop. All the latest, fanciest Samsung's iOS phones, or just some nice, you know, super simple phones so that you can have them as a backup. They've got those too, and you can use your $25 there as well. So what are you waiting for? Head on over to techsnap.ting.com. Go save some money today. And thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Okay, so on to the final story in today's main segment. Given up on HPKP. It's it, it's difficult for me to say that, say those. It is. I just letters. wanted to try. I thought it was. I thought H-K-P- it was worth it. HPKP. PKP. PK. HPKP. It's like PHP, but PKP. Yeah. So what what is that HTTP public key pinning? Is what we're talking about here, of course. Yeah. Um. Basically, it's a way of telling a browser to always expect a certificate that's sort of signed by these keys. It, it, it's a, 
it's a certificate extension as far as I can tell. I did I did I still don't actually precisely understand it, but basically there's a there's a way to have a private key and a public key associated with your certificate. And it can say, okay, expect certificates for the first for the foreseeable future, and you define that length of time to be signed by these keys. And you can specify other keys that'll be coming along, but but the, it, it's a way of avoiding uh, certificate hijacking or someone a man in the middle attack, something like that. It, it's to give your browser a sense of familiarity familiarity with your website right so that you i could say like if i'm getting a certificate i could provide um sign it with my private key and if i've then published the public key you can then check to make sure that any certificate that claims to be for this website would then match against that previously published public key yep that that's what i figured it was now someone correct us please we're always willing to be corrected if we that's absolutely right now um, there's a couple of things I learned about while reading this article that I did not know, and I'll, I'll tell you about them as we go through. So, to quote Scott Helm, I hope that's his pronunciation, HTTP public key pinning is a very powerful standard that allows a host to instruct a browser to only accept certain public keys when communicating with it for a given period of time, whilst H. PKP can offer a lot of protection. It can also cause a lot of harm, too. I'll be up front. While I was reading this article, I thought the guy has an axe to grind for some reason. It's like someone who has had a hard drive failure and they'll never, ever use that hard drive again because it failed on me. Or what was that story about uh, someone who who was recommending don't do your Windows updates? Kind of, kind of that oh, thing yeah, too. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Or don't use encryption because if you lose your key, you've lost everything. So he he does go into details, and I agree that with some of his conclusions, but I just don't get a great vibe from re- reading what he's saying. So keep keep that in mind. Read it yourself and see if you come to similar conclusions. So the problem with HPKP is that it can be quite complex to get your head around and requires a perfect deployment. Otherwise, things can go wrong. There's something called HPKP suicide. Sadly, there's a term for this. And And all it involves is a site making a potentially simple error. You enable HPKP... Tell the browsers which key you will always use, and then you lose those keys. They could be accidentally deleted, stolen in a hack, or whatever. It doesn't matter. If you pin yourself to a set of keys and then no longer have the ability to use them, you're in big trouble. And he goes across. He provides a, a link uh, to Spa- Smashing Magazine where they became afraid of that, and we've got that link in the show notes as well. Now, I go, I go back to, to the encryption thing. Yeah, if you do that wrong as well, you've lost all your data. So if you do it wrong, you do it wrong. Now, next thing he talks about is ransom PKP. So in a breach scenario, an attacker would gain control of your site via, via server co- compromise or domain ha- hijack and then enable these headers on your behalf 
when your visitors go, basically you're not using it. The hijacker puts in that you are using it. And when your visitors go to your site, they pick up the malicious HPKP header set by the bad guys. At some point, you then fix the problem and take back control of your site, except now none of the browsers will connect because of the HPKP policy they picked up from the bad guys. Right. And since you don't have the keys that they used, you, you, right. you can't do anything about it. Right. Now, I skipped over some stuff they were just talking about. And then he says, in the end, the point will always remain that it's hard to deploy and easy to get wrong. When I think about the pur- purposes of HPKP, th- though, which is to protect the host against misissued certificates from a rogue or compromised CA, HPKP was created when we didn't have any other mechanism to help us with that. Now, I'll paraphrase what he said because the actual sentence was didn't put forth the point that I just made as well as he originally said. So now he goes into a couple of things which are available now, which weren't available when HPKP came out. So what he's trying to say is use these tools instead, I think. Right. One of the things he he talked about was certificate transparency. And we talked about this before. There's a website called crt.sh, so cert.sh. Go there and enter in your domain name and see what certificates have been issued for it in the past. Now, the purpose for this, for, for CT, certificate transparency, is that once CT is a requirement... No certificate authority will be able to issue a certificate in secret without the owner of the domain knowing about it because it will be present in publicly visible CT logs. Is that your domain? No, this is freebsd.org. <laughs> now. Right, so like it's the kind of almost like a, like a public ledger or a yes. record of here. All right, here's everything that we've mm. observed this website having as a certificate. Mm. So, now, I sort of take an issue with this. No one will be able to issue a certificate in secret. Uh, It'll be issued, but unless you're actively monitoring this this information, you're not going to know. So, maybe we need to write some monitoring tools for this. I wonder if they already exist. That's a really good question. Because if they can provide the data in non-HTML format, it's easy enough for you to download and say, hey, this is what I got today. Check again tomorrow. This is what I got. This is what I got. Oh, it's different. Look, it's different. Alert, alert, alert. Yeah, that's okay. Let's encrypt issued another certificate. And you could tie that in with your let's encrypt uh, client to say, hey, I just issued this cert. Add that to the list. It should be okay. Don't alert me about it. It can be done. I'm wondering how easy it is. Though. Okay, it does look like they have a, a queryable RSS feed that you can get. You can get so you can generate an RSS feed for all the certificates for your website. That's useful. Yeah, totally. So now the next thing that's coming up, I had not heard of certificate authority authorization (CAA), not Canadian Automobile Association. But later this year, all CAs will be required to check a new DNS record called CAA before issuing a certificate. 
Oh, well, yeah, this is new to me, too. Interesting. You can set a DNS record that specifies which CA you authorize to issue certificates for your domain. That is clever. I like that a lot. Yeah, totally. That gives you some, you know, some some control back there. And you can be like, nope, this is the one that I trust. Only only trust certificates only issued them. by them. Only them. And of course, you have an account with them. And a good CA will say, hey, listen, someone else is trying to issue this, this account. So that eliminate that reduces the attack vector to getting your credentials for that ca but doesn't have some of the sad bad problems right in that if you need to uh you can always you can then change your dns if you need to so you just have to remember to do that before going to a new ca yes that would be pretty important now one of the things that he mentions that okay sorry on to the next uh reason why um hpkp should be retired revocation is broken basically if you if you have a certificate and it gets compromised you can say hey mr ca can you revoke this cert for me the issue right now is that we have no reliable way to revoke a certificate that will actually work both crl and OSCP mechanisms give us no real hope of revocation actually working, and they are all that we have right now. So CRA, CRL is a certificate revocation list. Basically, it's a list of certificates that have been revoked by this CA, and OSCP is a oh, wait, online certificate status protocol. It's where you can instantly look up and say, is this cert good? And it'll tell you. It's almost it's almost like a, hey, is this good? Yes. No. So it's a way of, of checking the cert before you actually trust it. Now, I went in and read his article on revocation is broken. And I found a, a couple of interesting things. One, Basically, the reason that CRL is broken is because it is a huge list. It is a huge list of certs, and it may be slightly out of date. You may not be downloading at all. Your browser may not maybe using an old CRL, stuff like that. Now, the problem with OS, OCSP that I had not thought of is information leaking. Somehow, now you have to check with the certificate authority of every HTTPS site that you visit whether or not this given cert is good or not. Right. So someone can accumulate a list of sites that you're going to. That's a very good point. Yeah, you're right. They're sitting there being like, oh, yep, okay, this this IP is querying me for this. And then you can just build up a big list of all the certificates you queried for. Yep. That's pretty, that's a pretty significant information leak. Yep. Wow. And I hadn't thought about that. I hadn't thought about that either. No. No. Um, so the guy has some good points. He, he, he does a lot of referencing to his own blogs and sites that he's written. One site that he did write that I really did like was securityheaders.io. Now, if you go there, and I'm sad that I did because it's actually giving me more work. <laughs> um, uh. It will tell you what headers you can place into your website 
to make things work better. Now, let me just see here. I did not have it open like I wanted to. And if I go in and I enter in my website, I see someone already did freebsd.org recently. Mm. Was that you? That was me. That was you. So now I'm waiting for it to come down. So basically, there's headers that you can add in. There's things like uh, strict transport security, content type, uh, cross-site protection, frame, uh, client security policy, uh, referrer policy, and public key pins. So FreeBSD gets a B because it doesn't have public key pins and it doesn't have a referrer policy. So I I put one of my websites in there and I get an F because I don't do any of this stuff whatsoever. And that's why I dislike it because it's given me more work to do. <laughs> yes, but it's pretty helpful and uh, kind of slick looking too. I like that they, they changed the colors and stuff. And mm-hmm. It's nice too because, I mean, you might, you know, there's like the, there's SSL labs and stuff. You can check other things, but this kind of goes above and beyond and, and, you know, helps you consider some things that you maybe wouldn't otherwise if you are actually concerned about security and want to do the best job of securing the people who visit your website. It's interesting that you say SSL Labs because that's what this site reminded me of when I saw it. I thought when I first went there, I thought it was a um, uh, a competitor, but it's not. That's what I thought it was. It is extremely similar. Yeah, it is definitely similar. Um. So, yeah, I guess people got to decide what they want to do with HPKP. I don't know anyone that's implemented, but but that that doesn't mean that people I know haven't. It's just that I'm not aware of anyone that's done anything for this. Yeah, right. And it, and it may be, um, you know, that it's a value proposition that doesn't make sense for a lot of places, but... But I could see maybe for very large organizations, people like Google, et cetera, maybe it does where they have the kind of manpower and, uh, you know, can have the kinds of highly regulated procedures in place that maybe will mitigate some of the risks of the, you know, the problems that can go wrong here. Uh, but it's definitely an interesting consideration because, you know, as with all, all things, there's, it's always a spectrum of, of trade-offs and security and um, usability. Yes, Interesting. Uh, I think it'll, this will probably be an ongoing debate, so I'm sure we'll find more on this subject in later TechSnap episodes. But uh, thanks to Scott Helm, because this has been a fascinating read. I enjoyed it a lot, and there's a lot to consider here uh, and a lot of good tips for helping make sure you're doing things right. Yeah, and if you go through this article, there's a lot of uh, links to to things that he's written, both websites and uh, um Sorry, by websites, I meant services, both services and blog posts. So I recommend going and having a read through there. Definitely. And if you're fascinated and you want to go set up some some new servers or play with the HPKP yourself, my friends, head on over to our final sponsor this evening. That's DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean.com. There you can use our promo code SNAPOcean, all one word. And you'll find cloud computing designed for developers, VPSs you can spin up in just 55 seconds, and a ton of first-rate cloud-first solutions. They've got things like cloud firewalls. Yep, that's right. No more messing with IT IP tables for you. You can do it on DigitalOcean. 
they've got monitoring, they've got load balancing, private networking. So you don't you don't pay for networking between droplets in the same data center. That's right. Working on object storage, they've got attachable block storage and did you know that's all SSD? DigitalOcean were some of the first people to jump on the SSD bandwagon, and it's paid off big time. No matter what size droplet you get, it's SSD. Plus, they've got incredible bandwidth. Uh, anytime I'm having bandwidth issues, or I'm trying to download something and it's just kind of funky, or maybe you know, maybe all the neighbors are watching the new Game of Thrones, I just spin up a VPN over to DigitalOcean, route my traffic through there, and nine times out of ten, just doing that solves the problem uh and so that really shows like they really do have you know that 40 gigabit e right to the hypervisors they've got first rate transit with all the best peering partners they take this stuff seriously and they're constantly adding new features i already mentioned that they're working on object storage but they've also just announced the general availability of high cpu droplets so if you've got some really compute heavy workloads DigitalOcean is the place to go plus they've got super great pricing so head on over their pricing page they've got it for everything just looking at their droplets though when you use our promo code snap ocean that gets you a ten dollar credit and their 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 bottom of the line droplet which is not bad at all that's just five dollars a month so you can get two months free to try out DigitalOcean, try out you know a new web server an irc server so you can start you know playing around with the m plus one sec whatever whatever cool project you're working on DigitalOcean's a great place for it that bottom line drop you get 512 mb of memory one virtual cpu and these are no slouches 20 gigs of ssd disk and a whopping one terabyte of transfer and did i mention their api because my friends they are dog fooding that stuff they use the api the community uses the API, and it really is first rate. It's not like some of these APIs you've seen at other cloud providers where you're having to read mountains and mountains of uh, terrible documentation, and it's just big pains of terribly nested JSON. No. Their API is designed very well. It's first rate. It's fast. It's easy. And it's clean. You can tell just based on all of the third-party tools that people have developed. Awesome apps, awesome command line things. We use it here at the show to start and stop recording and extra streams. It's super simple. And the best thing about DigitalOcean, that's the community. They hire real editors to work with the community to build an incredible selection of documentation. So whether you, you you need a guide on setting up that IRC server, you just want to learn about ZFS and running FreeBSD, you can head on over to DigitalOcean. They've got awesome guides in place. They've got one-click solutions that you can just launch a new ghost server or something. It doesn't matter. There's so many options. And that's why I keep coming back to DigitalOcean. Anytime I need something new, anytime I want to automate something away or move it out of my house for more redundancy, DigitalOcean. So use promo code SNAPOcean and get started with DigitalOcean today. And that brings us to the feedback, the time in the show where we take out some time and hear from you, our wonderful audience. First up, we've got a letter from Sen about database migrations. In episode 332, we were ta- someone asked about database migration and what tools we recommended. I strongly suggest using Liquibase. It requires Java, yes, but if you can gloss over that fact, it is simply the best database migration tool out there. It supports pretty much all major database dialects. Migrations are written in language-agnostic formats like XML or JSON, so you can use it in any project. It supports conditionals, e.g. see database only when migrating in the development environment. It can skip non-critical migrations on error and many more features. 
You can also mark a migration to only be run for a specific database dialect. I successfully reused a single migration set to produce tables on Postgres, Oracle, DB2, and SQL Server with just minor tweaks. Hey-o. I've been using it for two years now, and I am yet to find a critical feature that is missing or a bug that would be a deal-breaker. Documentation is also decent, and there's a lot of help out there, including Stack Overflow. Best regards, Sen. Awesome. Thank you for your tip there. Uh, you know, I I haven't used it a ton myself, but I definitely have had some some colleagues and, and friends who've used it. I've seen it used in a lot of projects. Uh, so it's great to know that you've had such success. What do you think about it, Dan? It, it's got a great website. Um, it also has a free BSC port, so it gets my vote. Um, I think I may want to try using this for fresh ports, even just for change management. Oh, yeah, that seems nice. And one of the nicer things, too, is like, um, you know, I like the XML or JSON or YAML formats because even if you don't want to write them in that format yourself, you know, it, it's a common format. So you could write it, generate them however you need to, and then have it work with Liquibase. Yep. Oh, nice. Here's some examples yep. in XML or YAML, JSON, or in SQL. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And, you know, I know a lot of people don't, the, the JVM is often uh, viewed negatively, but one of the upsides is all you have to do is be able to install, you know, a, a Java runtime environment, and then it will work. So that's actually kind of a plus in some ways as well. It is fairly portable. Yeah, definitely. It does run, and there's been a FreeBSD port since 2013. Oh, so. nice. Yeah, okay. That's awesome. Yeah, and it's definitely easy to, you know, get installed on, on Linux as well, as as well as Windows and uh, OS X, I believe, so... Whether it's in development or in production, seems like it would work. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you very much, then. If anyone else has uh, wants to write in about this topic, please do. I've been enjoying this uh, little thread here. Or if you just have experience with Liquibase, either good or bad, we'd love to hear about it. Thank you. Okay, next up from Kevin. Extra skimming prevention. Here's a tip. Hey, guys. I'm a big fan of the show. It's definitely my favorite among the JB shows, closely followed by Linux Unplugged and the Linux Action News. Hey, thanks, Kevin. We really appreciate that. I think what you guys are doing is great, and it's a big help to a lot of people working in IT, including myself. I'd like to tell you about an extra precaution you can or maybe should take against ATM skimming. Dan has covered this topic very well, in my opinion, and I would say following his advice will keep you as safe as you can be. Covering your hand while entering your code should keep rogue hidden cameras from recording it, unless... Earlier this year, it was uncovered over here in Europe that infrared cameras were being used to steal your code. When you touch a number on the keypad, your finger actually warms it up just a little bit. So after you're done with the numbers you've used, and only the numbers you've used, they'll show up slightly more on the infrared image. Once you have the numbers, it only takes a couple of guesses to get them in the right order. Yeah, that's a fairly limited permutation. So what can you do to defend against this? After you've entered your code and before moving away, And before moving away your covering hand, place your full hand on the keypad, touching and therefore warming all the numbers. One second should be enough to fool the infrared camera. Greetings from Belgium, and thanks for trying to make this world a more open and safer place. Hey, you're very welcome, Kevin, and thank you very much for sending us the feedback. Uh, Sounds like a pretty good tip. What do you say, Dan? I've heard about this before. I've heard about the, the cameras that they would use, and the brightness of the key would tell them what order they press them in. Right. Because they would dim down at a, at a different rate. Right. So, they should, yeah, exactly. And then I heard people talking about, well, what if you only had three digits? Like it's a four-digit pin, 
but it's only three distinct digits. Yeah. That, that, that actually help. makes it more complex. Yeah, definitely. Oh, that's interesting. Because then they only see three, and they don't know which order the doubled-up one was pressed in. Yeah. And they, yeah. So, anyway. Yeah, I wonder if there's other, you know, other mitigation tips techniques like if you know if you're wearing a glove or something that would transmit heat less frequently or maybe you even use a a special atm device to enter you know to press on the keypad um yeah or just a pencil would work very nicely yeah the the eraser end or interesting Mm -hmm. i would also like Mm -hmm. to see i wonder if we can Mm -hmm. find some i'll have to take a look i wonder if we can find some studies about this or if there's been any reports about it um it'd be cool to see some infrared imagery of someone you know doing an example attack of this I know, wow. I, I know I've seen some gadgets where you can even get for, you know, like an infrared camera you can add to your smartphone. Uh, so that might be interesting to do, too. Well, I wonder if we can find something just to have a, um, a quick look. Videos? No. Uh, yeah, tracing keypad numbers with infrared. It's on YouTube. And uh, then, the, then there's another video there that I've seen. I've seen this before as well. Basically, all that happens is, oh, they're pressing for a very long time. Oh, yeah, yeah that makes sense. Yeah, they're pressing for a very long time. But then, then I remember another one where someone uh, was pin code theft. And, yeah, all they're doing is they're, they're sort of watching it happen. It's a video. And it's just an infrared co- camera. And it's, it, it's, it doesn't even have to be metal. It just has to be uh, um, visible. Yeah, right. And so, I mean, that would also then, you know, the how damaging this attack is is going to depend on on what kind of infrared cameras and how good that technology is, and especially mm-hmm. in the ones that they can sneak or you know have there and and be recorded. Yep. Yep. Interesting. Well, thanks, Kevin. That's a that's a good tip, and and also. You know, just one more consideration will add to the long list of things you should be thinking about, even just in the back of your mind, to help keep yourself safe. No, don't. don't. This sort of stuff is... I always go back to, you know, it's possible, but it's probably not probable. Right. And I know some people get very, very anxious about these things, but, you know, just... Don't let people see what you're pressing, and I think you should be good. But try this if, if you want. Yeah, it, it's some it's some extra steps you can take. Uh, yeah, and you know, don't. I think that's that's a really good point. Like, don't don't go out of your way. Don't pull your hair out. Don't freak out and lose sleep about these kind of things. Um, but if it's easy enough to do, you can incorporate some of these into your you know your routine and your workflow, so that you stop having to think about it and you can just gain a little bit of practical security. Indeed. Okay, so on to our last bit of feedback today uh, over on the Twitter sphere. PC Freak uh, tweeting at TechSnapDan. In case you missed it, Let's Encrypt uses the dot well-known folder too when to verifying domain ownership via HTTP. Yep. Awesome. Now, I, I, might, may, I, I may have read this when, when I was looking at Let's Encrypt originally, but it didn't mean anything to me. And I completely forgot about it because I went off with HTTPD. Right. Okay. And in this second, uh, in the second Let's Encrypt 
integration guide, they do talk about, you know, if you're doing HTTP auth, you can actually offload, you can have a central server, but then offload the actual um, delegation to somewhere else. Oh, yeah, look at that. Here it is. If you want to use the HTTP 01 challenge, you may want to take advantage of HTTP redirects. You can set up each of your front ends to redirect the dot well-known slash acme dash validation slash XYZ to your validation server. Uh, And that way you can have one server that can kind of, you know, verify these things without having to expose that or set it up on each of them. That sounds pretty convenient. It does, doesn't it? Are you using the DNS challenges currently? Yes. Yes. I, I, I did DNS because... Not everything I'm doing has a website. Yeah, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Awesome. Okay. Well, uh, hey, that's some great feedback too. So thank you, uh, PC Freak. Uh, good little tip. And it's cool to see that uh, even if it's new to us, it's clearly not new to uh, a lot of the security community out there. Indeed. All right. Well, that wraps up today's feedback segment. If you'd like to have your feedback featured in an upcoming episode, you can go on over to techsnap.reddit.com. There you can submit stuff there, uh, get some feedback from the audience directly, or you can find us both on Twitter. Send us messages. We'll be glad to put it in the show. And lastly, and maybe the easiest way, go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. There you'll find some drop-down forms. You can fill it all out for the TechSnap program. That'll send us a message with your feedback. So lots of easy ways. Please do it. It makes this segment a heck of a lot better. And that brings us to the final segment of today's show. That's right, everyone's favorite, the Roundup. These are some uh, interesting stories that we didn't have time to do a deep dive on, but we didn't want to miss out, and we didn't want you to miss out either. So let's jump right in. First up, over at GitHub, we have write a hash table in C. Hash tables are always uh, you know something we like on the show, not only because they're super relevant, but I hear Dan's a fan too. Yes, I do like hash tables. Hash tables remind me of rainbow tables. Yeah. Uh, rainbow tables being typically a whole bunch of passwords that are hashed so that when you find a hash in a breach, you can look it up and see what the original password was. Sounds like a nasty thing to do, and it is, but that's the way things work. Hey, I like that little summary. You know, hash tables are one of the most useful data structures. They are quick and scalable insert, search, and delete, make them relevant to a large number of computer science problems. And that's why these Mm -hmm. days you see them included in just about any high-level language that you're going to be working Mm -hmm. with. Mm -hmm. And they're just a very generic, useful data structure. Um, It's it's neat to see this in C, too, because even if you're not familiar with C, uh, I agree with the author's sentiments that C is a great language to write a hash table because the language doesn't come with one. And it's a low-level language, so you get deeper exposure to how things work at the machine level. And so you could probably pretty trivially implement one in a high language and not have to deal with some of these things, but uh, doing it in C, you'll have a really good understanding. Um, plus, I like this because the, the repo set out. They've got some nice uh, content. Uh, it's about 200 lines of code, so it's totally understandable. And they say it should only take you around an hour or two. So if you have some time on the weekend, maybe give this a shot. Okay, so next up, we're moving right on because this is the roundup. That's how we roll. BGP leak causing internet outages in Japan and beyond. I am, I am so glad that I never have to deal with B, BGP. Or Border B- Gateway Protocol, for those who don't know. Yeah, I, I'm glad too. Basically, 
it's a protocol that tells everyone where everyone else is, more or less, simply speaking. And it says, listen, if you want to get to this place, I can handle it for you. You can send the data to me and I'll take care of it. Unfortunately, some of that information got out and it was incorrect. And um, other people passed it on and kept passing it on. And, well, a lot of people could not get to places because they thought the place to talk to was over there. And that place just didn't have anything to do with that traffic. So the traffic got dropped, which effectively shut down the site that you were trying to get to. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it sounds like this event as well kind of gave us some insight into uh, how the networks of some of these big players, people like Google and Verizon, um, are connected and, and how it's how it's working. So it's kind of fascinating because it's a layer that unless you are an ISP or are a big enough multi-homed company that you have to run your own autonomous system, it's just not yeah. something that thankfully you have to deal with. But it is a key part of how the internet works and how it scales. Yeah, I'm glad I don't have to do with it. Amen. Okay, so moving right on and away from BGP this time, here's something very different. The right way to manage secrets with AWS. Yeah. Um, something something that, that I wasn't aware of but sor- sort of should have known about is that when you're deploying a server in a data center, it's going to be there for a while, and you can set it up and say, well, this is so-and-so, and the IP address, and you can identify it by IP address, and you say, okay, that server's allowed to do this and stuff like that. <coughs> Excuse me. But when you're dynamically deploying stuff, you don't always know the IP address you're deploying. And so it's totally different when you're saying, oh, my God, I have to scale this out now. I have to scale it out now. And a lot of that will be automated. And so this service identity is something that you have to know about. And that's what this article goes into. Yeah, you know, I appreciate it uh, just from that perspective as well. And, uh, you know, AWS has a lot of different primitives that you can use for this. And there's a lot of other open source or not solutions to try to help with this. So I think it's just a good example of how they've found that it works for them and have some good, you know, practices and uh, a, a pretty detailed guide for how they do this and how they manage it. And I do think, you know, especially like you're right, like it's hard to get those security things right when the server might not even exist yet and you don't know when it will. Um, yeah, this, that's what living in the cloud, the cloud ecosystem looks like. And so you, but you know, secret management is still very important. So they touch on how they, how they do that with IAM roles and, uh, AWS parameter store. Uh, so if you're interested in that side of the world, go check it out. Thank you. Okay. So next up back to our HTTPS theme of today how to incrementally move an e-commerce site to HTTPS. This is over at practicalecommerce.com. It uh, it starts off with some motivation here. In October, Google Chrome will release version 62, which will warn website visitors with a not secure message when they type in data, such as site searches and newsletter signups, on pages that don't have HTTPS. It will also issue the not secure warning to all HTTP pages in incognito mode. They're really stepping it up. And so it's becoming all the more important that it's, you know, sites that are trying to make money or rely on user input mm-hmm. that you that you properly have HTTPS set up. But the reason he's talking about gradually moving is if you move everything at once, Google doesn't have the new data. Google doesn't have the new search stuff. So it hasn't re-indexed the HTTP stuff yet because it didn't exist so it's almost like you need to have that traffic out there 
and then get it indexed before you start using it. It's one of the reasons that I I always redirect uh, the domain name to the www.domain name. Okay, interesting, yeah. So it never, you don't have the same content listed twice. It's not, it's not, the the crawler is not going through your website twice. In other words, all your content is in www.freshports.org. Right, and so you even just have you, a, like yeah. a redirect from mm-hmm. the base domain? Yep. And even though you have fresh freshports.whatever domain, always redirect it to the one domain, and that's the one that gets indexed. That's the way I like to handle it. Yeah, that seems like a good way to do it, and that's actually a, a pretty good reason for the www that I hadn't heard articulated that well before, so that's great. Yeah, so this just seems helpful. I mean, and yeah, there are a lot of, you know, especially when you have <coughs> visitors in flight and other such things, if you're running an active e-commerce site, it, it probably, you know, it pays to get this right. You don't want to mess it up. Uh, it can also be pretty bad if you, you know, enabled HTTPS and, and disabled it or switched them up or had to change your certificates or other things. Um, so it pays to understand what the, you know, what the potential pain parts are and what you're going to need to do to have a successful transition. So hopefully this is a helpful guide. And what was the other thing? Uh it also helped with my website statistics. So it's just one URL being indexed, not two, and you have to... Do you see what I'm getting at? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I remember it was years ago when I first started doing that. Really liked it. Liked that approach, and now I try to do it for everything. I think I will follow you in that one. Okay, so uh, next up today... <laughs> This is good. This is good. Google removes 300, yeah, 300 apps used to launch DDoS attacks from the Play Store. Wow. Yep. 300. Yikes. That is a lot. Well, the the apps were nefarious. They actually provided a variety of apparently legitimate services with malware hidden underneath that could use an Android device quietly participate in a DDoS attack as long as the device is powered on. It's not sure how many devices were infected, but one Akamai researcher told journalist Brian Krebs that that number could be around 70,000. After noticing the attack on one of its customers, Akamai brought in researchers from a handful of tech companies, including Cloudflare, Flashpoint, blah, blah, blah. The group believes that the infected devices are spread throughout 100 countries. Now, if you remove them from the App Store, they don't disappear from the app, from the devices, do they? No, they do not. So, so it, it's least, not a perfect solution here, but hopefully it's at least stemmed the tide and we won't have have more of these at least immediately after. Yikes. I can well, see why they'd want to do it, though. I mean, uh, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of Android devices out there, many of them mm-hmm. running, you know, old versions or other things. So uh, that's, it helps, helps with the DDoS for sure. Yep, yep, yep. It's what were you going to say, sneaky, sorry? Pretty sneaky. No, I was just thinking it's just such a horrible way to get taken advantage of. Oh, yeah, right? Especially if, like, I just wanted this, uh, you know, SSH app or, or whatever it is. And yes. uh, now suddenly you're participating in a TDOS attack against your will? Yikes. Yep, yep. It's and- rotten. Exactly. Okay, so here's something that's not so rotten. Over at dev-sec.io, here's a hardening framework. What is this? Well, it it has a diagram, 
and you click on the diagram and you say, I want to harden Apache. And so it takes you down and you have a, chef, a link to a Chef GitHub uh, project or to a Puppet GitHub project. Okay, say you want to harden Postgres. Well, it takes you to in, ensure trusted SSL, password encryption, system monitoring, and verify file system permission. And you have stuff that run uh, Puppet Forge, Puppet GitHub, Chef Supermarket, and Chef on GitHub. Chef on GitHub. And it's a whole bunch of different categories, like MySQL, Apache, logging, monitoring, SSH, operating system, intrusion detection, firewall, patch management, Nginx, and Postgres. So some of them are in scope, some of them aren't in scope. Um, but yeah, that, they're basically... Here's some stuff you can run to help harden your system after you've configured it, or, or rather, as you're configuring it. Oh, this is awesome! And actually, you know what? I'm I'm already using their um, their chef recipe for the OS hardening layer. I didn't realize it was part of a, a whole stack, though. So this is great. It's it it's is super cool. useful. And then you know, like um, for for our case, we're we're using it so that we can um, have VM images baked in with all the latest you know security patches applied and with good security default set up, so that when other people use them, they're you know ready to go and secure from the start. Huh. And this all helps, you know, because you're, if you're using a Chef or Puppet or Ansible or Salt or whatever, uh, you know, this helps you be reproducible, helps you get it right, and make sure that any new systems that you're adding will be secure by default. This is a good idea. Very much so. Okay, so with that, we're on to our final roundup item of the day. <laughs> this is a fun one. 10% of the internet is encrypted with lava lamps. Say say what? Yeah, yeah. Um, Cloudflare offers content delivery network services, protection against denial of service attacks, stuff like that. So... They claim that 10% of the world's internet go through their servers. Now, to encrypt that traffic, the company actually has a wall of 100 lava lamps in the San Francisco office. Then there's a camera that takes a picture of that wall every millisecond. And each picture is different as lava lamps do their thing. Basically, this is fluid dynamics. And... Fluid dynamics is very hard to predict. It isn't. It is as close to random as anything you can get, and so they have a very good solution here. Not only that, it's very entertaining as well. Yeah, you know, fluid dynamics. It's like a, a second fluid order. Fluid dynamics system. are hard, and no one has figured out how to predict the movements inside a lava lamp, let alone a hundred of them. Yeah. This mean, that means the random numbers being used in Cloudflare's encryption are truly random, effectively, at least, is what they say. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, uh, they're, they're normally chaotic systems in that they have, uh, you know, uh, dependence, uh, they have a sensitivity to the initial conditions, and so without that, you, know, you just can't, can't really understand. They're going to do so many different things depending on those. That's, that's clever. I've, oh, there you are. You disappeared on me. It also... And you're back. Oh, and good. you're back. It also makes me think uh, that's kind of funny, but it also, uh, hopefully their office is nice and secure because in some ways we're now relying on the, you know, it, we almost always would be regardless, but we're relying on the physical security of their San Francisco office as well. I wonder if those lava lamps were broken, what would happen? I know, right? The office party goes wrong, someone breaks the wall, suddenly uh, 
suddenly our encryption isn't so good. That is very interesting. Well, they they use a double double pendulum in the London office. Really? Decaying isotopes off a pellet of uranium in Singapore. That makes sense, yes. And that's it. I've seen those as well, though, um, like the uranium randomness, uh, you know, using uh, nuclear decay to generate random numbers. I think they even have like some hardware dongles you can buy that do that. Hmm. So it supplies you with some uranium in the dongle? Yeah, or like a tiny bit of some, uh, you know, some thing that will decay and that you can then use. Boy, where where was that? I'll have to, I'll have to look for it. Is that because this stuff decays randomly, or because it yes. you can't predict when? Yeah, you, when you can't predict when off. the next one's going to when the next uh, decay particle will be emitted. Mm-hmm. I do like lava lamps. Yeah, lava lamps is the most fun and probably by far the most stylish. So uh, props to Cloudflare for a very cool solution. I had one. And it sort of went all gunky and uh, didn't really flow anymore. So you're no longer using it for encryption. That's what you're trying no, to say. I, I, yeah, I think it disappeared. This would be, be a nice. fun system to try to recreate as well. Well, they, they take the picture every, every millisecond and they use that for, for feeding their randomness. But it can't be that hard to do. Yeah, no, it seems like it's kind of straightforward in one sense. Interesting. Well, I'm glad they've well, got this, and it's a fascinating article, so you guys should definitely check it out. Yeah, they had this photograph, and then the, where the bits are on and off in the photograph, it, that's your randomness. Right, yeah, right there. Huh. That is very cool. Wow. So what happens, too? Like, what? how's the camera angled? So can people get in the way of it? Is there public access? I have all kinds of questions. I wonder if you could just go visit their uh, Cloudflare office. I might just have to try that next time I'm in San Francisco. I think, yeah. Hmm. Well, they're glass, right? So they could have them on display, but then the camera's behind it or yeah. up on the wall. Or that would make sense. Yeah, definitely. Lots. I wonder of ways if they have photographs it. of it somewhere. <laughs> yeah, right. Like you save Flare. each of the photographs. Flare. Oh, it looks Lava. like maybe over here at uh, Fast Company they might have some pictures. Oh yeah, there it is. There we go. That's the. That's the. Uh, Fast Company is Fast Company design. Yeah. Including a picture of the wall taken by Granny Grant. Yeah. That is pretty cool. Now, and I'm surprised they use the same, all the same. <laughs> yeah, me too. I wonder where they sourced them. Were they very careful about that to make sure they didn't get some sort of, uh, you know, non-random lava lamp from a compromised source, uh, supply chain breach? <sighs> I've... I bet they just sent someone out. <laughs> yeah, right to the local local uh, weird store and grab some lava lamps and come back. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, well, unless you have anything else, I guess that wraps up today's roundup and thus our show. Yep, thank you. Thank you, sir. This has been your TechSnap program, episode 334, in fact. If you want to find more of it, you can head on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. There you'll find the archives, both of our show, the past incarnation of this show, and all the other awesome shows on this network. There's really just too many to name all of them, but go check out BST Now, Linux Unplugged, and uh, Linux Action News. Those are all some of my favorites, and don't forget user error. 
Go find out for yourself. Or while you're there, you can also go check out the calendar page. That'll show all the all the upcoming shows, when you can watch them live. The live stream is available on the website as well. You can hop on the IRC room there. And the all-important contact page, go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. There you can easily send us a note, and we'll be sure to do our best and include it here in the show. If you want to have a little more direct contact, there's techsnap.reddit.com, or you can find us both on Twitter. I'm at Wes Payne, and he's at techsnap underscore Dan. Thank you very much for watching, and uh, stay tuned. Be here. Join us next week. We'll have a new episode for you of the TechSnap program. Yeah.